And welcome to another edition of the Sports Cafe. We have a name, ladies and gentlemen. So um, I'm Mike Weil, along with Ian Gus, Mike Mandel, and welcoming back Adam Rosen from his one-week hiatus. Hey guys, how's it going? Adam, we'll start with you. you. You back and ready to go this week? Yeah, I feel like a caged animal. I'm roaring to go here. Had a one-week hiatus due to work as, as well as a sinus infection, but feeling 100%. Ready to uh, ready to go to battle here. Nice. Glad you're feeling better. Ian, how's it going in New York? It's good. Last week, uh, it was overly hot. Our air conditioner was on and was hoping no one could hear it. This week, it's beautiful out. So excited for uh, another week of mostly no sports to talk about, but also a lot on the agenda. So let's dive in soon. Yeah, it's amazing how much we have to talk about, even though there hasn't been a game played since March. <laughs> so we're, we're doing pretty well. Um, Mike, how's it going in, in Philly? Doing great. I'm finally about to take my uh, my first vacation in six months. Uh, going to leave for Ocean City, Maryland tomorrow, so I'm I'm excited. It's awesome. Well deserved vacation, probably. Uh-huh. So yeah, so we're gonna get right into it. We have a, a full show actually, even though there's no sports. We have big baseball news that is sad, but it's it's recent. It happened yesterday. And um, some NBA news about the return to play. And then some talk about the Long Gone Summer documentary that aired on ESPN on Sunday. And if we have time, maybe some other topics. So starting with baseball, um, I think I've been one of the most optimistic in terms of if they'll return this year. But after yesterday, my view has changed a little bit. So just to catch everyone up. Uh, Yesterday, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred told ESPN that he isn't confident, he's not confident that there will be a 2020 baseball season, and that as long as there's no dialogue with the MLB Players Association, that real risk is going to continue. And ironically, he said this on the ESPN Return to Sports special. So, um, Ian, I'll start with you. are we at the point of no return now that Manfred has said, you know, it's not likely or can outrage from fans or the Twitter backlash from players spur some action that will cause the season to start? Um, I guess the second part of your question is probably no. I don't think he's going to bend because of fan reaction or, or kind of public pressure. I think he's, you know, he's really the owner's lackey and, and enough of the owners are want to want him to hold out. I think his big mistake was saying with 100% certainty that we'd be playing. I'm not really understanding why he said that only, I think, five days before he walked that statement back yesterday. Um, I mean, I'm definitely not very hopeful, but I do think this is still a negotiation ploy and tactic. I think the players, um, you know, specifically went to Twitter right after um, his comments yesterday and and called him out. And basically, it seems like it's a stall tactic, um, you know, for the next 13 days, two weeks to try to kind of minimize the opportunity to play more than, you know, 50 or so games. So, Again, I think the players just have done a much better job, even if, you know, they're as much in the wrong or, you know, I'm sure it's it's at least more split than it seems. They've just done a great job, in my opinion, messaging and kind of getting out in front of things and being aggressive. And, um, you know, I think it's a lot easier to take their side on this one this year. Um, I know Randy Levine, Yankees president, went out today, did some radio interviews, tried to kind of, you know, ground things and 
I don't know, his big thing was let's get everyone in a room and, and start negotiating. It's like, <laughs> this is a little too late. Like, you know, we're now how many months into this? Like this should have been the first idea. So, you know, I think a season can still happen, but it's going to be some sort of a strange 45 to 52 game season that in my opinion is, is, and I think we talked about this last week a little, it's just not really, we, it's hard to call it a world series at that point. And, and Mike, do you agree with Ian that this is something that owners are using to leverage where saying that it's not possible just gives them more time to, to have a shortened season? Absolutely. I mean, their their behavior over the past you know several weeks has been perfectly clear. They are not going to budge on the amount that they're willing to pay the players, and, and they're doing their best to try to you know pay them as little money as possible and get the most games out of it. So I, I think it's pretty easy to take the player side on this one. And I, you know, my, my thoughts are that the owners probably hope that yes, they, they won't come to an agreement because the owners will continue to make bad deals that they know are bad deals to the players. And eventually, you know, they figure the players might cave if there's time for a 50-game season in which their salaries are not prorated, but still, you know, for 50 games, heavily reduced from what they would be. Um, that very well could be their plan. Um, and, you know, I hate to say it, but I do agree with Ian. I don't think any sort of um, fan blowback is going to influence them because so far it hasn't and, and they've already seen a bunch of it on social media um you know i'd like to think that maybe there's still a chance especially if you know some of the other sports start picking up maybe they'll feel the need to get baseball going um so as not to um make themselves an afterthought but you know it's not looking good especially given what the owner said um and you know, it was it was frankly pretty silly for for, for him to say that the the owners are interested in finding a way back to the field because they're clearly not. They're only interested in finding a way back on their own terms. Mm-hmm. And Adam, I'm ready to, to unleash the, the beast, ready to uh, give his opinion on this. Uh, do you agree with, with Mike and Ian, or how do you feel when the players are all saying, tell me when and where and, and I'll be there? Uh, can that spur the owners to act? Yeah, it's it's really a tough situation, and truthfully, it's hard to empathize with either party when you're talking about billionaires versus millionaires. I think what fans want to see most is transparency in the process, and I don't think we're really getting that. Um, a lot of it is negotiations and uh, legal jargon, but I think Rob Manfred's biggest mistake was saying, as, as Ian had mentioned, that it was a 100% chance that the season, that the baseball will be played this season. And I think he said that as a negotiating ploy, that the players would be forced into playing a 50-some-odd game season, which I think they all re- recognize that the fans won't accept as a quality product or a legitimate way to determine a World Series champion. Uh, so he's really put himself in a bad spot. And even his comments on the ESPN special last night where he, he kind of backtracked a little bit and he said the owners are 100% committed to playing a season. That turned out not to be true either when reports came out today that at least six owners, and I think Ken Rosenthal actually said it was as many as eight, uh, don't want to play the season. So to hear Rob Manfred say they're 100% committed to playing baseball, and then a day later you hearing that owners have no interest in playing the season. It just feels like we're being fed all these lies. And as a baseball fan, look, it's 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 hard to watch at this point. You, you get to the point where it's like, 
you, you sort of lose interest. Baseball, uh, basketball's coming back. Hockey's coming back. I'm kind of sad to say it, but I think the sports world will be all right if baseball decides to skip the season as long as we have those other sports to watch. Yeah, and I, I agree with all of you guys. I Adam, to your point about it being kind of disingenuous almost, that the owners keep saying, well, here's an offer, here's an offer, here's an offer. But as we discussed last week, all the offers are pretty much adding up to the same thing, that if you have 50 games full prorated salary, it adds up to the same thing as 75 games, three quarters, and et cetera, the, the other offers that they've had. And there was no way that the players would accept that. And you could see all the players on Twitter, this whole process, take a united front saying, this is not okay. We're not stupid. We have calculators. We can see what you're doing. Um, and it just leaves a terrible taste in your mouth. Uh, for me, I was super excited. I thought we'd have a season after Manfred said we're 100% playing baseball during the draft last week. I was like, all right, great. You know, there's going to be some sort of season. And then to turn around and come back and say, well, now it's not likely. I mean, we're all big, diehard, loyal baseball fans. But for the average fan, when you have all these other options now, this not only could impact them in the short term, but it could impact them in the long term. And um, Mike Mandel, uh, in terms of the fan impact, do you think that this the longer this gets drawn out, will it have an impact on future seasons or has the damage been done or once they play, will it not make a difference? I'd say if, if a miracle comes together and they can play at least half of a regular season, then, you know, they, they might've been able to salvage it. You know, I, I think next year to start, it's going to be very tough for baseball in general to win back the, the trust of its fans and of the public. Um, who will at this point have seen, you know, three other sports figure out a way to, you know, th three other major sports figure out a way to, to get through this. And, and with baseball's owners being, you know, that much more rigid and, you know, that much more difficult to deal with. Now, that being said, the one thing to remember is that, you know, and I, I guess we're still figuring out the schedules of basketball and hockey for next year, but there's a good chance that at least at some point next summer, baseball will be the only game in town. You know, once the, the playoffs will have concluded in basketball and hockey and football yet to start. And I think when that happens, people will get back into baseball. You know, will it be the same game that it was before all this happened? I don't know. They, they might lose a few fans forever who, who are really embittered. But I think by and large, they're, they're going to be okay um, because of the fact that they really are the dominant sport in the summer. And, you know, when push comes to shove, people are going to enjoy being able to go back to the ball games. Even if they're pissed at the owners about it, they'll, I think they still want to see the sport. See, I'm not sure I agree with you there, though, Mike. I mean, we were all probably too young to really remember the 94 strike. I think the diehard fans like us will come back. Of course, we'll, we'll continue to watch whenever they come back, whether it's a shortened season this year or whether it's next season. But I think what you're, where you're really running the risk is, A, the casual fan, and B, just this younger generation of people who – you know, are growing up and they're trying to figure out which sports and which teams to really get into. And there's all these other options now. And here's a here's a time where everybody's sitting around in the house with nothing to do. And baseball is is missing out. And for, for young kids who are trying to find a sport or a team to get behind and to hear, oh, you know, mommy and daddy, why aren't they playing? It's like, because they, they can't agree on money. 
um, you know, when you hear about everything that is going on in the world and, and all the hardships that that people who are a lot less fortunate are going through, I think it's a real turnoff. I worry more about the the younger generation who hasn't really established a fandom yet versus maybe some of the older folks. Yeah, and I think it's an issue that the league has been dealing with for a number of years. The age keeps increasing of those that are, you know, baseball fans and the ratings continue to go down. And to Adam's point, I mean, not only are, you know, young people not able to follow MLB, they're not even playing baseball with leagues basically, you know, on hold or canceled right now. And um, I think that's a factor. And then also the draft, what we saw this year, and I think it's continuing next year, only five rounds. So that's basically... I think a normal draft is what, like 40 rounds. So yeah. there's ton, there's tons of players now who are basically, you know, out, out of a job or it's just not, it's disincentivizing people to play baseball and those long-term effects are going to be damaging. Um, just a couple other points on, on the, the kind of back and forth. I wouldn't even call it a negotiation. I think we talked a little bit about this last week. It just seems like leak after leak by both sides um, rather than an actual dialogue, which I mean, I think we can all know that's pretty basic in order to, you know, reach a compromise, reach a deal. You have to talk, you have to communicate. And these sides don't seem to be doing that at all. And I think while the players in this instance are mostly correct, I think they're, they are as well kind of missing the big picture. And I think there's an opportunity for them, um, for both sides to get creative and, you know, use this as a one year uh, you know, whatever the situation is, this is not, this shouldn't be indication of what's going to happen at the end of the CBA after 2021, but they had this opportunity to figure things out and, you know, the players fine, they're all sticking together. They're probably right. But I think the casual fan or the fan who just is even less than a casual fan doesn't really care. I mean, if there's no baseball, they'll, like we were all saying, there's other sports to watch this year. There's other content it's it's going to be forgotten and that's just going to hurt the sport and and everyone you know in the long term and i'm i'm glad right. you brought that i'm glad you brought that up Ian, because i think most people would side with the players the players are not completely uh blameless here and as you mentioned it really hasn't been a negotiation the players while they do have the strongest union in all of sports have been completely unwilling to budge and i don't know the exact details of what they agreed to in march 26 but i would imagine there was an expectation that that fans would be in the equation, and fr from a business standpoint, and the owners haven't, you know, released, you know, any of their, um, you know, how much they're making or how much they're going to lose. But I think you have to factor in the fact that there's there's not going to be any fans there, and how, you know, the owners are going to take a hit there, and there's a lot of people across the country who have taken pay cuts uh, who are making a lot less money than the players are. So I'm not saying that the players are wrong in their stance, but let's also be real. They've been completely unwilling to compromise at all uh, to come down from the 100% prorated. And that's why this has been so difficult because neither side is, is willing to budge. Mm -hmm. And yeah, to, to, go ahead. no, to the first point about fans, I, I agree with all of you where, I, I also think it's a short-sighted view. And, and Adam, to your point about the owners versus the players, owners could lose more money by fans not coming to games after the season as a result of the negative impact of this back and forth, um, where people will be turned off. You'll have less tickets sold, less concessions sold, less merchandise sold. So, so all of those things add up to the point where the money difference between playing the payer, paying the players a full prorated salary versus 75%, it's going to be made up by potentially the losses that 
the owners are facing in future years if there's a long period of waiting between baseball seasons. Because, Ian, you, you brought up a good point about the CBA, um, and that was my my next topic of discussion where you have this period where it could get scary where 2020 might be done after these failed negotiations or Twitter back and forth, whatever you want to call it. Then you have 2021, which if COVID's still around, there still might not be fans. So then we're in the same boat. And then 2022, the CBA ends after 2021. So we don't know what's going to happen in 2022. There could be a strike. So Hopefully that doesn't happen because I think this is the longest we haven't had baseball in probably. I think it's ever. forever, actually. Yeah, yeah I think in, we just passed the longest time. So let, let's not lose sight of the fact the fans pay the player salaries. So as mm-hmm. much as the, the, the owners have to understand and appreciate the fans, the players do, too. Right. And yeah. and I think that the risk you run into, if it's going to be the longest wait already, from last season until now without baseball. Can you imagine after another few months of this or even a couple of years, like it could be forgotten? Um, Mike, what were you going to say? I, I was going to say that, you know, I, I understand what Adam is saying about how the players haven't been compromising, but, you know, from my standpoint, I, I don't understand why they should be willing to give up more of their salary, right? It's already going to be prorated versus the amount of games they're playing. Like, why, why should they have to, you know, give even more of that up? Well, because the the prorated just reflects the number of games. That doesn't account for whether or not there's fans in the in in the seats, and that's a big chunk of change. But okay. one thing, one one thing I'm wondering about: Do you guys think that if they skip the whole season, that not just worrying about the impact of whether fans are going to come back, do you worry about the quality of play for next season? So you think about like guys who have missed an entire season due to injury as a as a Mets fan there's there's plenty of guys there's David Wright there's Cespedes and you worry about all the rust that they have from not facing live pitching for over a year but do you worry that for the entire league to go a full year without real live baseball that the quality of play next season would be dramatically impacted I think it's definitely a possibility, especially with players that are, you know, not in tip top shape or just not working out as much. Um, I think, you know, I think it might even be worse, though, if we play a 50 game season this year. I mean, you know, especially pitchers just going all out um, from the start. There'll be no kind of ramp up period. It's going to be a shortened spring training. So I think it's it's something that's that concerns people. I think um, injuries are I feel like are just such a main factor with MLB, especially in spring training and, and ramping back up. Um, I think it's something that, you know, I think we'll have to watch very closely. Just one other point on kind of the players versus owners. I think um, what we were kind of talking about with whose fault it is and things like that. I think there are a number of factors that while, yes, it is millionaires versus billionaires, the billionaires get richer and, you know, you know, you look at the average player salary, it hasn't increased in five years, which again, we're talking about millions. So it's hard to cry over it, but we don't see those increases the same way we're seeing with ownership. I think, um, you know, back to some of the messaging, we saw the TBS Turner deal leak over the weekend yeah. and, and the owners are getting a huge increase of, I think, 135 million a year over the next nine or 10 years. So that money is going straight into their pockets. Um, it would be interesting to see. I think, Adam, your point's true of not having fans in the stands. We don't know, right? We don't know how much of that really affects their bottom line. Is it 5%, 10%, 30%? 
um, those kind of facts. And I think the players want to see it too. That's why we always hear, you know, open the books. So it's right. some of the stuff has been going on for since the 94 strike. I don't think there's going to be any major resolutions here, but the lack of creativity from both sides is where, where I'm just surprised. Because you think, you know, these are some of the smartest minds in, really in the world, and, and no one can kind of think outside the box. Also, some of the greatest mm-hmm. minds, I think, that counterbalance. <laughs> well, that's true, too. <laughs> well, they, yeah, they said that Manfred was the negotiator for Bud Selig for a long time, and then yeah, uh, the Michael, Michael labor Weiner, lawyer. Weiner was the negotiator for MLB, and he was much softer than for the um, players wasn't he for yeah so he would cave to the owners and in 2016 the owners got a really good cba for them and as ian said the players sort of are getting the short stick with right and also tony tony clark i think has gotten a lot of negative press over the years as not being like the best leader for the players so maybe he's trying to make up for that this year and then there's also talk about scott boris really control you know pulling the levers behind the scenes so yeah, it could be. I mean, the the thing that stuck out to me, and I think when this may have first started going downhill, was two years ago when they reported record revenues for the owners based on TV deals and other uh, like local TV network revenue, and the players' salaries went down, and they, they went down again. So the players, to me, are the ones that are putting themselves out there. They're the ones exposing themselves to any medical risks, if there are medical risks. They're the ones going away from their families. So I, I hear what they're saying in terms of getting full salaries, and um, it's pretty short-sighted, in my opinion, of the, the owners not just to, to come to an agreement with them. Um, and I guess, Ian, to your point, and Adam, to your point about the players being rusty, um, Mike Mandel, what team or, or what players do you think will be most affected by if there's no baseball? Would it be the younger teams that are starting to to emerge from rebuilding will it be the veteran teams who need to stay fresh uh or a different type of team or player well i i think first off um you know batters in general are going to feel it worse than pitchers because you know pitchers will they'll still have their stuff even if it's not as accurate but but the batters are going to find it you know harder and harder to hit um I, I think when it comes to the question of of the veterans versus you know, some of the up and comers, it's, it's going to be the veterans who are, who are going to have a tougher time because, you know, they're already aging and, you know, you, you give them a whole year off that they're going to seem so much older than, than they already were. Not, not that, you know, 34, 35 year olds are old by any means, but, but, you know, by, by sports standards and even baseball these days, uh, post steroids, it's, it's considered old. And I, I think it's going to be tougher for them to hang on to their past. Um, you know, I've already seen how, how, you know, the Phillies dealt with it, even without any break in the season. Um, you know, they, they tried to hang on to their past for way too long and you know, the players kept falling off. And I, you know, I think having a full season off is, is going to accelerate that to an extent because now you're looking at players who are two years older than they were before, um, you know, the last time they played. Um, and, you know, for them to be able to remain in contention when, when you have young players who, you know, granted they weren't playing, a, you know, a full ball game, but, you know, might have been practicing more just knowing that the expectations are going to be there. Um, I, I think we're going to see that play out. Got it. And Ian, do you have, is there a team in your mind that that would be most positively impacted or negatively impacted by the, the, yeah, this I no mean, baseball? I think at a, at a high level, all the bad teams are going to be positively impacted and all the good teams will be negatively impacted. I mean, you know, look at the nationals, 19 and 31 to start the season last year. So you, you have, 
the best teams, you know, often going, getting off to slow starts, increasing the playoffs will, you know, just kind of help with the randomness. I think as a neutral observer, I don't know how many MLB neutral observers exist. I think it would be a lot of fun to watch the chaos, but it's really not representative of a real season. I mean, from a Yankee standpoint, you know, obviously spent big money on Garrett Cole. He only has so many years in his prime and, and giving up a season uh, you know, giving up a year in his prime this year is is uh, far from ideal. I think probably the team that has it worst is the Dodgers with Mookie Betts making that trade, and then he potentially is going to be a free agent after playing zero games for them. So they, they might get him at a at a bargain rate though next season. Yeah, that'll be interesting to follow. I mean, I think he's still one of the top players though, so he'll probably get a pretty big deal. But I think you know, I think probably the. You know, the, not our teams, the the kind of the Marlins, the Orioles, the Tigers, the Royals, those kind of teams are the ones that are going to benefit from a short season. Yeah, Adam, how do you feel? Do you do you see the Mets or other teams in the division benefiting from no season or does this negatively impact everybody? Well, I think there are pros and cons. The, the biggest losers of this whole thing are the, the guys on, on one-year deals because looking at what the free agent market could be next season, I, I think some of those guys are in for, for major disappointment. Um, you know, a guy like Mookie Betts, who will still get paid, but probably not at the astronomical level that maybe he was hoping for going into the season. Um, as far as teams that may luck out, I think you look at a team like the Red Sox, who weren't we're probably using this year as, as a year to reload. Plus you have a guy like Chris sale, who was going to miss the entire season. Uh, if the season isn't played, then you, you kind of get a free pass there. Um, you could say the same with the Mets and Noah Syndergaard, although the Mets were, were still going all in. They, they were actually kind of mortgaged a lot of the future to try to win now. So you could actually argue that, that they're hurt big time by this because you, you, um, you know, you, you traded all, all these, um, young assets to, to win now. And, and it's a, another lost season. Yeah, I, I think that the actually most positively impacted team is the Houston Astros for, for yeah. obvious reasons. Yeah. That that True. they had a whole year of, you know, basically ridicule wherever they went because of the scandal and now probably barely anyone remembers it after all the stuff that's happened since then with coronavirus and then the lack of a season. So I think the Astros probably in my mind would benefit the most. Um, I agree with you guys that the good teams or, or players that are on uh, expiring or one-year contracts are hurt the most. But also from my perspective as a White Sox fan, um, I think rebuilding teams, teams that were on the cusp of really uh, starting to get traction are hurt because um, it, at least for the White Sox, for example, you have a lot of the young guys that are were either rookies last year or coming up like Luis Robert or Nick Madrigal, um, they're not going to get a chance to develop until another year down the road, potentially. And I think that early in your career, it's so important to get your first at-bats or first year of play out of the way because that's when you really get comfortable. And it's just pushing a lot of these guys' timelines back. Um, also, we were talking about the draft a little bit. Um, rookies or, or draft picks that just got picked are going to have a very hard time breaking in or catching up because if you don't have minor league baseball or baseball period this year, um, they're not going to have those at bats to advance and get better, those innings to pitch that will get them closer to the major leagues. So um, to me, you're probably going to see a lot of these younger players or just 
players in general maybe go into different leagues this winter or in the fall. You might see the Dominican League or the Mexican League get a lot of these guys. I think they talked about expanding the, the Arizona fall, fall League, either to both Florida and Arizona mm-hmm. or just in Arizona. But so much is going to depend on the virus because I know I was just reading before the show that I think the states that now have the most cases are the states that MLB was looking at playing in uh, prior to to removing the bubble option with um, Florida, Texas, and Arizona. Um, So I guess in some ways it was good that they didn't go with one of those options. Speaking of the MLB draft... The uh, the number one pick, the, the Tigers took Spencer Torkelson, who I'm sure none of you had heard of before, but I actually was quite familiar with him. He played in the Cape Cod League for two summers, and he, I, I knew he oh, was a great player. He, he put up monster numbers there, but when I started reading some of the mock drafts and I saw that this guy was projected to be the number one pick, I was like, wow, it, it really kind of hit me. My dad and I used to love him just for his name, uh, Spencer Torkelson, <laughs> just a great baseball name, but... Pretty cool to see him. Uh, You've seen him play in person. Yeah, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to face him as a uh, as a White Sox pitcher in that division a couple years down the road. Yeah, as long as there's baseball, I think uh, <laughs> I'll be, I'll be happy no matter. I'm just, I was waiting for this reel for four or five years, and and then it's gonna happen. And now we made a baseball two of the next three years, so. It, um, <laughs> but yeah, I'll take Spencer Torkelson against Michael Kopech. Um, in terms of entertainment so we'll see but um guys before we move to the next topic i mean did did you have any other thoughts on on what went on this week or the draft um or or do you feel like we've pretty summed the latest news yeah, up i mean i think from a draft standpoint i i very rarely watch mlb draft and i i wouldn't say i watched it you know beginning to end i did tune in for the yankees picks um, but you know, it's just so hard with, with the MLB draft and, and really getting a sense on, you know, who made a good pick, who didn't as with almost all drafts, the analysis is always so positive. Like no one, <laughs> no one ever makes a bad pick. Every player is going to turn out to be great when in reality, especially with baseball, I mean, the chances are, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's, it's a lot less than other sports that first round picks are going to really develop into stars. So, um, you know, again, it was somewhat entertaining for an evening last week, but, uh, very quickly forgot about it as well. My final thought on baseball, I, I, I hate to say it, but it's so important that if they are to come back, and I, I don't think that they will, but if they are to come back and play a season, it has to be a credible season length. I And I think, truthfully, I, I really think it's got to be at least 80 games, which I think is off the table at this point. But I think a disastrous situation would be coming back, playing a season that is not validated in the fans' eyes, and then, heaven forbid, your team wins a championship and no one else recognizes it as as authentic. I think that would just be a nightmare because for someone who has never seen a championship in my lifetime, look, I don't know how I'll feel. I mean, the conditions will be so drastically different between the shortened season and no fans in the stands, but I just think it's so important that if baseball is going to come back and play – that they make it as credible a season as possible because we don't want a fake product. We don't want a fake champion. Do you think they'd ever consider as we get down to 40, 50 games, like not calling it a world series champion of like creating some sort of 2020 tournament or something where it's like a standout season? Because I think you're right. Like your point is well taken no matter who wins at this point, if we play that 
you know, few games, it's hard to see it as a, a real, you know, to put it on par with any other World Series champion. But I, I think Rob Manfred understands that. And I think when he said his uh, there will 100 percent be baseball, it was under that threat that baseball would implement a 50 game season. I think the players called him out on his bluff because I think mm-hmm. Rob Manfred and, and Major League Baseball understand that the fans won't accept 50 games as a real season. Yeah, Mike Mandel, do you agree with that? Uh, probably. I mean, no, no, knowing them, uh, you know, they, they probably still try to get away with it anyway because it's, it's going to be all about the money and it's going to, you know, feel better for them if they can still call it a World Series to, to a season. But, you know, will, will the fans buy it? Definitely not. And the other final thought I wanted to make, um, when it comes to the collective bargaining agreement that's going to expire, I, I do think that the lack of season or, or what might be a very shortened season is going to be a bit of a wake-up call because, I, I you know, I do think that there's going to be a cost next year. I, I you know, I, I'm not saying, and I know you guys disagree with me on my point about it picking up in the summer. I'm, you know, I'm not saying that there's not going to be any hit that the league is going to take. I think there will be a hit certainly in the early going. And I think that both sides are going to say, we cannot let this happen again. I think if anything, they're going to be more inspired to come up with something um, after the current agreement expires so that we, you know, we don't get into this mess. Cause I think, I think, Either side, you know, as stubborn as they are, they, they have to know that this is not good for the sport. And for them to, you know, have two strikes in three years, that, that would just be disaster. Like, then I don't think the sport yeah. will recover. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you that, that I think that they better be smart about this. And though if you have a 50-game season, it's obviously not the same as a 162-game season. Uh, they could call it something and, and just say – you know, even though it's a shorter season, the champion is still the champion because everyone played the same amount of games. It's obviously different, but I think that some baseball, no matter what form, is better than no baseball. And hopefully the owners will realize that the players are, are no pun intended, playing hardball with them and they're trying to get the best deal possible. And the owners might have to say, listen, we'll we'll lose this one just to to have some games. So hopefully things will work out right now. It doesn't look so good, but we'll be here again next week to give you the latest updates on baseball. So with that, I want to transition to a slightly happier topic from the happiest place on earth, uh, Disneyland. The NBA is going to, I guess it would be Disney world because uh, it's Florida. The NBA is going to start their season on July 30th, and conveniently for us, an hour or two ago, right before our show, Shams uh, Charania from ESPN released the, the game day schedule. Oh, on, on The Athletic. Thank you, Adam. Yes, have to cite The Athletic. So Shams from The Athletic, uh, he put the game day schedule up on Twitter for the bubble, and um, it looks like it's pretty organized. And they, they have everything uh, broken down. But the thing that was interesting to me was the, the choice of hotel, uh, that you have the top teams all staying at the Grand Destino, which to me looked like it, it was the least nice of the three hotels. I mean, it seemed it was new and everything, but the middle How teams the get the advice? Grand Floridian. I'm, I'm going to look that up. But the middle teams get the Grand Floridian, which I personally think is the nicest of the three. And the top teams get the Yacht Club, which is also very nice. So I don't know, guys, if you if you have opinion on the choice of hotels, but uh, did you did you see that? And 
did you see advisor any other reviews for uh for those hotels ian i'll start with you since you have the magic kingdom in the the background they have a, a background that fits the moment and just to clarify the happiest place on earth is disneyland while the most magical place okay. on earth is magic kingdom so that's, that's the uh, official distinction got it uh, no, I mean, I think what, what leaked out tonight was was good to see. I mean, I haven't read through all of it yet, and it sounds like that's almost a summary of a larger document that exists or that they're finalizing of all the safety precautions. And beyond safety, it's just, you know, what the players are allowed to do, what kind of entertainment they're going to have, movie nights and video game nights, and it sounds like summer camp or something. But, um, you know, it all sounds great in, in theory. I haven't seen any thing that's too insane like when we were reading some of those baseball restrictions on you know how far your you know people can be where you're actually getting dressed for the game things like that i think this plan is pretty well thought out i know there was some um, discussion over the last few days around the employees at at disney and those folks will not be in the bubble and i believe they're not going to be tested as often um, i'm not sure if that's since changed but i think that was one area of concern um, for a lot of those involved, because those people are going to be interacting, you know, with the players and the staff on a regular basis. So hopefully they've thought through that, especially with cases in Florida, you know, increasing uh, pretty dramatically. I think it's hitting a new high every day now over the last few days. So, um, you know, it, I, you know, I think Adam Silver is probably in the best position of any professional sports commissioner, at least in terms of public perception, and also. You know, he seems to have a good relationship with his players. So that counts for a lot. And, um, you know, excited to see kind of some of these dates trickle out. And now we know when exhibition games are starting. And while the season itself starts July 30th, it seems like we'll have some, maybe we'll have some content even before then. I think if you're looking for uh, your Disney hotel power rankings, we should probably bring in our Disney guru uh Jared Diamond, we should probably have him on the podcast. He can give us the whole audio <laughs> yeah, tour of the ins and outs of, of Disney World. I, I did hear the same thing, that the apparently the, the Grand Floridian is regarded as the nicest hotel, even though the, the second-tier teams are staying there. So I, I'm almost wondering if maybe the, the Grand Destino maybe is uh, closer to the gyms or something. I was thinking I'm about sure the distance, a, yeah. Yeah, there, there's probably a reason for that. But what I am most intrigued about, other than to see these guys come back and play. You, you know, you, you talk about all these documentaries and, and content out there between the Jordan and the, you know, Maguire and Sosa and, you know, Kobe documentary on the way, Magic Johnson. Is this, this will make for one fantastic documentary. And I hope that ESPN and whoever else is able to get some, uh, some cameramen in there to film some of this behind the scenes stuff that is going on, being in a bubble in Orlando and seeing the, the hotel interactions and the, you know, the dynamic between all these teams staying in the same hotel, I think it would be really interesting. And maybe they could get some live content, you know, as it's going on and hopefully the players will be active on social media, but just to see a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff. I know a guy like LeBron is ge generally uh, deactivates all his social media during the playoffs, but you almost wonder now, mm -hmm. given the current circumstances, if maybe he'll be a little bit more active and, and give people an inside look about what's going on kind of being locked down in Orlando during the NBA playoffs. Yeah. And, and Mike, what's your, what's your take on the schedule and the arrangements for the, the teams in Disneyland, Disney world. So when it comes to the arrangements, I, I've actually been to both the Grand Floridian and the Yacht Club. Uh, I haven't been to the Grand Destiny. Oh. That's too new for me. But I've been to both those two. And funnily enough, I actually thought that the Yacht Club was, was the nicest. They're both great. 
you know, fantastic hotels, both in, I think, the, the deluxe category. But I, I actually was most impressed with the Yacht Club. And, you know, that, that, that's where the, the so-called reject teams, though those that have not yet clinched a, a playoff berth or who would be out of the playoffs if the season ended today, they get to stay there. And, and there's less of them, too. So I, I thought that was interesting. Maybe, maybe, you know, the NBA threw that in there to give them more of an incentive to come, given that, you know, some of those teams are really not likely to, to ultimately make the playoffs. But if, if I'm a player, like... I'm actually loving this. I mean, I'm getting an all-expense paid trip to Disney World. And it's basically a private Disney World because no one else is really going to be there. And, you know, it's almost like going to, 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 to Minnesota. But I don't think they're allowed in the parks, right? They're not allowed in the parks, but they're going to be on the premises. And, and I'm looking at the schedule, and it's it's almost like having a mini summer camp going on. So <laughs> but the, I, the, park, the Disney parks are opening up, aren't they? They are. Yeah, so open, the, yeah, so the players won't be allowed to go anywhere near that. Yeah. Are the parks going to be open in time? I, I thought they weren't going to be. I think uh, they're supposed to open mid-July. We'll have to double-check. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah we can. I mean, right, right now, Florida's not looking so good at, at handling the new caseload, so uh, hopefully that'll turn around by then. Yeah, and, and to, to all your points, I, I that's actually what I was thinking, too. It's exactly like summer camp. Like They're, they're making it like an all-expenses-paid camp experience for two and a half months, so you get a little over eight weeks, which is the normal camp schedule. It's a little bit like um, the Olympics too, right? Like the way the teams kind of hang out during the Olympics. Right. They're all in the Something, bubble yeah. together. The teams, I, I read something interesting that the teams that are together might do some recruiting for, for the next seasons, whoever they want to play with. If they have targets that are staying at the hotels that are going to be free agent, they can, they can uh, do a little bit of recruiting under the table. So it's basically like NBA summer camp. And or All Star Weekend, or All Star Summer, Weekend, yeah. All Star Summer. So that would be fantastic for a documentary. You get like a couple NBA cameramen in there, and you have them just record stuff. You could have like Big Brother NBA Bubble mm. Edition or the Real World, whatever it is, where they um they stay in the house with them. Uh, so it should be really interesting. But summer camp actually was one of the first things that came to mind. Um, when looking at the DJ and the different game nights and movie nights that they have, uh, they're really trying to to make it work for the players. And in terms of the the quality of play, uh, you know, I it, it and thank you for for putting that up. So Disney World theme parks will open beginning July 11th for the Magic Kingdom, and then it just went away. I didn't catch the other. Uh, and then Disney's Animal Kingdom park followed by Epcot. And Disney's Hollywood Studios are July 15th. So by the time this starts, all the parks should be open to the public. Uh, so the players probably, unfortunately for them, won't get to enjoy the theme parks while they're there. But, um, I mean, do you think that the setup is going to create a situation where teams that wouldn't necessarily have a chance have a better chance? Or do you guys foresee, you know, the favorites, Bucks and Lakers or Bucks and Clippers, getting to the the finals of this tournament so I, yeah I I actually, mean, I, go ahead yeah and, and i know we talked about this a little bit last week but i, I think that there is a chance for some of the lower seeded teams and, and it's because they're, they're not going to have the additional obstacle at having to play in the uh in, in the favorites backyard right that they're not going to be playing in milwaukee or or los angeles that they'll all be playing in orlando and that, that's going to be one obstacle that, that i think is a pretty significant obstacle to no longer have to overcome i mean i think that you know, the, the higher seeded teams are going to be the favorites, but it's going to be a little bit less overwhelming. Um, 
you know, given that they're both playing at a neutral site, I, I think it's going to be more about, you know, the team versus team matchups, um, more so than it is the strength during the regular season. Um, so I, I think that piece is going to be interesting, and, you know, particularly with my team, which is, you know, likely that they're, they're going to be starting as one of the lower-seeded teams. Uh, they'll have a chance to, to prove themselves and to prove that they, uh, you know, they can play anywhere as long as they don't have opposing fans. See, Mike, I, I would actually take your point and make the opposite argument. I would argue that having the fans would give the inferior team a better chance to compete because you have that extra energy provided by you know your your home fans. Presumably, there's a better chance to win at home. I would argue that when you're playing in an empty gym, there's a better chance that the better the better talent is is going to win out. Um, you know, because that other team doesn't get that that extra boost from the home crowd. It's really just about okay. Who are the best players on the floor? And those are the guys that win the game. We'll see if they decide to pipe in sound. I know that's been mentioned, you know, whether it's the home team, you know, cheering or the music or whatever the case is. But I mean, I think it, it's going to go not that different than a regular, you know, a regular playoffs because it is the, the length of the, the series is not changing like we're seeing in, you know, in hockey, for example, and obviously baseball is its own thing. So I think overall it shouldn't be too different and we already, you know, have kind of for the most part sorted out the playoff teams, but you know, we talked about it last week, a team like the Sixers who for whatever reason are terrible at home, right? Um, terrible on the road, terrible on the road, other way around. Yeah. Yeah, So that's where it could get interesting. I, I, I think you both make good points. It could go either way, but it's kind of just that unknown factor of, of what the setup's actually going to be and what factors, you know, we'll have to kind of think about as we start playing. And one thing that will be kind of cool to see if it plays out, obviously there, there won't be fans there, but you would think that if all the players are quarantining there, that guys from all the different teams can go and watch. That was mentioned in the document. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine yeah. that you've got like, you know, LeBron playing in a playoff game and like Kawhi Leonard is sitting there in the front row watching. Um, and that would be really cool to see. You could, you could kind of zoom in and get the player reactions. Maybe these guys are, are live tweeting from opposing playoff games. I mean, that's something obviously you would never see. I mean, it would take a, a, a scenario like this for, for, for this to happen, but that would be something really cool that I'm sure the, the, the broadcast could have a lot of fun with. Yeah, Adam, that's a great point. And it could create a home court advantage for whoever the underdog is because <laughs> you have, you have the players that don't want to play the favored teams, presumably. Um, so imagine just getting, the whole team together plus families to watch a game where you have your next opponent playing yeah. the underdog and you just have everyone screaming at the top of their lungs for the the underdog to win it could be a lot of fun to see so Th- this I'm, would be I'm like a, you guys I, yeah, yeah i was going to say ahead. this would be like a real a real time scouting opportunity it reminds me very much of Division three basketball where, you know, yeah. we go on road trips with the teams and, you know, the, the, the men are sitting in the, in the stands while the women's teams are playing. And then the women are in the stands while, while the men are playing. Uh, I think it would have a, a, a pretty similar feel to that for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited for this. Honestly, I, I think that it's going to be a lot of fun to see how this dynamic works with all the players together. And also just, you'll probably be able to pick up on a lot more of the communication that goes on during a game without a packed stadium. You get to hear kind of what the NBA would be like as if it were played as a high school game or as, you know, a D3 basketball game that similar to the Monte Carlo scrimmage from the dream team where you could hear, 
you know, everyone talking to each other, uh, this hopefully will give us the same experience. So, um, and, and then the, the last thing I wanted to touch on before we move on to the long gone summer documentary is the fact that there are some players that have said that, you know, they're not necessarily so eager to come back. So, do you guys think that this could be a problem where a lot of guys elect to sit out this uh, abbreviated season and playoff setup? Or once players start coming back, do you think everyone will fall in line? Adam, I'll start with you. No, I'm not too concerned about that. I think the way that they've set this up, the risk is is pretty small for the players. I mean, they're they're literally in a bubble. I you know, I think the risk is 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 limited. Plus. I think a lot of these guys, you know, they 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 want those paychecks. And I know Kyrie made some comments about trying to sit out the season, but the vast majority of the players are not making $30 million a year. And I think sitting out the rest of the season, while Adam Silver has, has given players permission to do so, um, if they're not comfortable, I actually don't know if they would get paid. Um, actually, they, they probably would. Um, but as far as, as maintaining the, the, the proper competitive levels and having all the players there, I think that once everyone is on board and once LeBron gives the green light, I think, I think everyone will follow. Yeah. Mike, do, do you agree? So I, I think first off to Adam's last point, I, I saw something that said that the players wouldn't get paid for the games that they didn't play, but they wouldn't incur any extra penalties. But I, you know, I do agree. I don't think it's going to be a, a big deterrent because I'm, you know, Ky- Kyrie Irving, of course, is, is the main player who, who I guess is, has caused this debate, but he's not really getting a lot of support, even from his own teammates. And I, I think it's because, you know, most players were able to do the simple math that, well, yeah, it, you know, of, of the 22 teams, 14 of them are going to be out of there within the first round of the playoffs, if not earlier. I mean, I think we, you know, we, we've known that anybody who can, who can do basic math, um, it figure that out. I, you know, I think for the players, it's, it's an opportunity to, to just play some basketball. And, you know, I know the other issue that, that Kyrie had, uh, had talked about was more political, but even there, I feel like my counter argument to something like that would be, well, if if you want to, you know, make your platform known, go out there and win a championship. You're going to get a lot more attention that way than if you, you know, sit the season. That's a good point. So I, uh, yeah, Ian. Oh, sorry, Mike. No, you're good. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to add that I think it's set up very well. I think the issue is going to be if we get, you know, people not adhering to the bubble. And, you know, once we get in month two plus, although I guess those teams remaining will be the ones that are, you know, most on the line. But as we've seen with thinking back to our friend Dennis Rodman, uh, not every player is you know going to be in love with being in a bubble for, for three months. Um, and, you know, I, I see they have to sign, you know, they have documents they have to sign saying they're going to adhere to all the rules. But, um, you know, in practice, who knows? But I think right now it all it all looks and sounds great. Um, and and in terms of, you know, the point of our players going to show up, I think overall they will. There might be some that have, you know, conditions or things that they don't feel like it's worth risking. It seems like they're all, the, the loss in, in salary isn't that great. It's like 1% per game or something. Um, but I think it is, you know, the, the league will, I think they've been talking through a lot of these issues, whether it is, you know, the social issues or the, you know, the question of is it right to play and whatever the case is, they seem to be talking through that. And I'm pretty confident they're going to reach kind of a consensus among the larger league. It is a little surprising that they're seem to be talking about it after they've already agreed to it. Um, but, you know, I don't think there's huge news out there that makes it seem like 
things aren't going to fall into place. And the other thing you have to remember, it's not 24 teams that will be there for three months. I mean, a, a chunk will be gone after after eight games, and then as you progress in the playoffs, I mean, it's really yeah. going to be two teams who are there for the full time, most likely, you know, the Lakers and, and Bucks. But, um, you know, for, for the vast majority of teams, I mean, you're looking at one month to, you know, one to two months pretty much. Yeah. I, I agree with you guys. I think that most of the players, once the, the top players in the game show up, the team leaders, uh, most of them, if not all of them, will end up playing, um, especially for the playoff teams that are projected to go deep. You, you don't give up a run at the championship uh, so easily. So um, with that, uh, we'll, we'll look forward to hopefully getting the NBA back soon. Um, and we'll actually have live sports to talk about. Uh, we're about a month and a half away from potential NBA games, so that's exciting. Um, and now going back to live baseball, uh, the only way we can get it recorded um, is 1998, the home run chase between Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, and to an extent Ken Griffey Jr., um, the long gone summer documentary on ESPN uh, aired this Sunday and Adam and Ian, uh, I know you guys watched it. Um, Ian in, in particular last week, you were excited about seeing it. So what was your initial reaction to it? Uh, did it meet your expectations? Honestly, I was somewhat disappointed. I was hoping it would be more of a um, balanced look back. It was very much, a, I guess, a nostalgic look back and, and very positive feel to it until we got to maybe the last 15 minutes that really, uh, you know, hit at the heart of why that, you know, that home run race is so interesting now looking back at it. Um, the other thing that for me was just really jarring was they used a lot of footage that seemed to have been shot in the last couple of years mm -hmm. that seemed to have been, you know, they were trying to almost trick the audience as like they were, you know, using that footage, but like there were Chris Bryant jerseys and like obvious mm -hmm. things going on that to me kind of took me out of the moment. I think, you know, if you were a McGuire fan, this documentary is probably amazing for you. Like it, it I think it painted them in a a pretty good light. I think Sosa was, you know, didn't get as much attention necessarily in the documentary. Um, but I just thought, you know, the steroids and the cheating, like that should have been a much bigger focus. And it, it got, you know, very little time in the overall two hour runtime of the documentary. Yeah. yeah Adam, uh, what was your take? Yeah. Ian, you, yeah, you pretty much uh, took all my points <laughs> there. I agree with you pretty much about everything. My, my main takeaways were, uh, first of all, it, the documentary clearly focused a lot more on McGuire than it did Sosa, which, um, you know, it certainly wasn't really promoted as that, uh, obviously the, the lack of discussion around steroids, that was, that was pretty obvious. It, it really wasn't touched on it. They mentioned it briefly where they found the, the, the bottle of Andrew and yeah. locker, but other than that, they didn't address until the last 10 or 15 minutes. Um, I did actually watch, uh, a documentary. I don't know if it was a 30 for 30, but it was on Sosa um, from from a few years ago, and they really press him on the steroids aspect. It, it was with uh, Jeremy Schaap, mm -hmm. and at one point Sosa got up and left the interview. He ultimately came back like an hour later, but he only under the condition that they would stop asking him about steroids. So maybe that past experience had something to do with it, and maybe they they weren't really or Sosa in particular wasn't willing to talk about it. 
Um, but yeah, you you also mentioned Ian the the snapshots of of Wrigley Field. I mean, I it was very bizarre. I, I had to do a double take when they're saying you know Wrigley Field 1998, and you see the two new electronic scoreboards and and a Chris Bryant jersey in in the stands. I thought that was that was really sloppy. Um, you know, I think coming after the Jordan documentary, that that's really tough act to follow. But even like the the drama of the actual 62nd home run that McGuire hit, I thought they could have done a lot more to build up to that and to really capture how awesome that moment was. Um, I thought it, they 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 went through that pretty quickly. Um, so I would have liked to have seen that. So look, it was overall disappointing, but. As you mentioned, Ian, it's kind of fun to go back and relive yeah. that exciting time during all of our childhood, which was a big part of help helping bring baseball back on the map, uh, you know, after the strike in '94. Yeah, and and I agree with you guys. I at first, given the tone of the documentary, after the first five minutes, I'm like, okay, well, this is just going to be a nostalgic look back ignoring a lot of the the backstories that we all knew and just looking at it from kind of the eyes of a 10 11 year old kid like like we were back in 1998 that that you know you you're innocent and you just see it for what it is and mark mcguire hitting these moonshots and sosa blowing kisses to the camera um but to me uh i would have liked to have seen a lot more of the backstory of the coverage of, of the steroids. You had Craig Biggio staying, saying that he took creatine, which, you know, that's known as a performance enhancer now. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, can we get into that a little bit? And obviously you guys mentioned McGuire with the Andro in his locker. Um, and that's something that if you're going to have a documentary about the 1998 home run race, it has to be mentioned more than kind of a cursory, oh, well, this happened. There were some hearings and baseball eventually moved on, but these guys had a lot of home runs. So um, I I agree with both of you guys on that. Yeah. And Mike Mandel, I, I know, or Ian. Uh, I was going to add one other reactionary you... thought um, mm-hmm. that I think Mike Mandel will have an opinion on this too was seeing, and, you know, this is not from the documentary necessarily, this is public knowledge, but, you know, McGuire, you know, admitted to to doing, to cheating, and it got him back in the good graces. He was a coach for, I think, six or eight years after his playing career. It seems like he's now out of baseball, but I don't think that's related to anything steroid-related. Yeah, I think, isn't he still coaching with the Padres? I was looking. It looks like his last year was 2018, but I, we can uh, double-check yeah, it. Yeah, I think his last year was, it was 2018. Um but but I think it's just interesting to see Sosa. He you know he doesn't say he didn't do it. He just like everyone was doing it. So to me that's like he did it, but he won't say he did it. And you know the Cubs have continued to banish him. So I just don't understand at this point why he doesn't. You know even if he doesn't admit to everything, admit to something. I just think it would put him back in the good graces with the franchise and with baseball. Right. And and Mike, I was going to ask you um, about your memories from '98. Even though you didn't see the documentary, uh, did you follow the home run chase closely? And did it kind of get you more into baseball or had you already been watching pretty closely? No, it it absolutely did. It it was a lot of fun to watch because, yeah, I was a 10 year old kid. I didn't know anything about steroids. And, you know, to me, it was just a lot of fun seeing all these guys pop home runs like never before. And, uh, you know, back then, I I guess baseball was probably my fourth tier sport. I think I, you know, I'd still been a bigger fan of 
of basketball, football, and hockey than baseball. And by the time we got to, I'd say the 2000 season is when baseball had become my number one and has been up there for, for the most part. Um, you know, but the reason I didn't watch is because, to me, they are cheaters. Both of them are. And I, I like that McGuire has since, you know, admitted to that. And, um, you know, and therefore, as Ian said, it has been able to make his way back into baseball. But, you know, as far as the, their records go, to me, like, you know, I'm glad they're not in the Hall of Fame because they did not hit those home runs the same way that Roger Maris did, you know, or, or anyone else after him that, that has come close. I, I you know, so I, I guess that, that that was my disinterest there. And I, you know, I didn't even know whether it was necessarily going to be on nostalgia or if they were going to talk about the steroids piece. But, you know, to me, there's always going to be an asterisk next to both those guys, um, you know, because I I remember seeing a sign, um, and, and this was actually in reference to, to Barry Bonds when he was about to break Hank Aaron's home run record, and th- there was a sign that somebody had in left field that said, Babe did, it, Babe did it on hot dogs and beer, Hank did it with his heart, how do you do it, Bonds? And I, I think that oh, yeah. summed it up for me. Um, but, yeah, n- nonetheless, it was fun to watch at the time. I was a kid, and... I just love seeing, you know, the, the, the home runs. Yeah. And Adam and Ian, did did it, I mean, you guys, I'm assuming, Ian, the 98 Yankees were incredible, so you were probably all over that season. <laughs> um, but did it have any impact on your, uh, you as a baseball fan, or, or were you guys already into it without no, the, I mean, the I, chase? No, I mean, I was already following baseball pretty closely but i think that home run race it was a lot of fun it was, you know they were i thought at the time they were two likable guys i think sosa had a, had and still has more personality and he's very easy to root for and you know no one knew about steroids at the time but i think you know the, to make the argument that everyone was doing it like that's just a very weak argument i mean there's not proof that everyone was doing it i mean there's yes there right. are players that have been doing it and also if everyone's doing it why wasn't everyone hitting, you know, 70 home runs a year? Right. So you can talk about everything related to steroids. Well, that well, that if everyone was doing that, that that shows that how good McGuire was. And I, I think it's naive to 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 not understand how prevalent this was in the culture. Um, yes, these guys got the most attention because they were the best players. But this is why I I struggle with keeping guys like that out of the Hall of Fame because. This this was the steroid era, and look, I'm not justifying what they did, but I think if if a guy if if a pitcher's on steroids and a hitter's on steroids, and the hitter gets the best of him, I mean, I kind of think it's playing it's an even playing field at that point. Um, and and regardless of that, I I still think that 70 plus home run or 70 for McGuire, 73 for Bonds, is such a remarkable milestone that I think to not have that be to, to pretend like it didn't happen and not let it be part of the most famous baseball museum um, in the world doesn't doesn't feel right and I know we you know we could spend a whole podcast talking about you know who should be in the Hall of Fame but um, you know I, I try to remember the, the the positive from that home run race which was it was a really exciting time to be a baseball fan and it was too remarkable talents, regardless of what they were taking, um, creating a history that will probably never be replicated. Yeah. And Ian, I want to, I want to kind of jump back to your point about Sosa saying everyone did it. I think that totally discredited him that a lot of guys were clean. 
even though there were a good number that cheated, we also have no. Sorry, we have no idea. You can't. You can't. We just don't know. Well, clean might be the wrong word. Guys that have never been accused. Right, guys that either were tested and tested negative, or were accused and didn't do it. Because I think to say that everyone was doing it is a cop out. That he's not acknowledging that he cheated and that he he was doing something to gain an advantage. You look at him before. Um, and when he was on the Rangers and on the White Sox, he was a doubles hitter who is a good base dealer. Yeah. And so to go from a, a thin doubles hitter to a giant home run hitter, and the same thing happened with McGuire to an extent, and the same thing happened to Bonds, um, there's a definite advantage. So so I, I disagree. I, I think he cheated and, and that there's... Um, you know, there's consequences for cheating, but the, the, um, yeah, I just think... the one the one thing you can't do is you you can't speculate who did and who did it. Like everybody says, you know, know well, well Griff Griffey didn't do steroids. How do you know Griffey didn't do steroids? He was teammates with A Rod. He played in the steroid era. He got significantly bigger as his career went on, and then he broke down because of injuries. I'm not saying he did, but I think to try to speculate who did or who didn't for sure, we just have no idea. No idea. Yeah, Ian, you were going to say uh, what was missing from the documentary or what you would have liked to yeah, have seen. Yeah, no, there so. were a few things as I was watching. And, and I think if we're, we're light on content for next week, I think we can have a spirited debate about <laughs> the Hall of Fame steroid. Oh, I'm for it. And I think, I'm you know, totally the one, one kind of nuanced point that I want to at least mention on that topic, and we can talk more about it. To be in the Hall of Fame is different than to be honored with a plaque in that wing of the Hall of Fame. Yes. Their accomplishments are already in the Hall of Fame. It's not like it was banished from acknowledgement in history. The well, ball, you could you could have a are, you could have a mention on yes, the plaque. Yes, there's different ways yeah. you can do it for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe we'll we'll chat more about that next week. But I think watching the documentary, there were a few things that stuck out to me. I think you know Bud Selig was not interviewed. Um, there were a couple of comments from him. Um, but you know, him being the commissioner throughout this whole era era would be great to, to hear from him. I'm sure he wouldn't, you know, have too much, <laughs> probably he'd probably be somewhat defensive, but, um, I think it would have put things into context hearing from him. And then, um, we saw Jack Buck, you know, on the call for a lot of the McGuire home runs tearing up. It would have been great to hear from his son, Joe, who, who we did. I think we heard his call a few times from the Fox broadcast, but, um, you know, instead of, um, I'm trying, I don't remember the guy's name, not Bob Costas, one of the other commentators, um, oh, Chip Carey. Yeah, Chip Carey was kind of taking the role of, you know, that Joe Buck would have taken talking about his father. I think that would have been a better connection, you know, for the audience. I know uh, Mike Mandel is is, uh, far from a fan of Joe Buck, but um, I think it would have been fitting um, in this scenario. And then also Griffey. I mean, the Griffey piece, that part I didn't remember as well, how close they were until they were in the 30 or so home run range. Um, And then Griffey just did nothing, I guess, the second half of the season. I don't know. I mean, Griffey, I guess, is a pretty private guy. You don't hear from him that often. But, um, you know, for something like this, it would be curious to hear his thoughts on all, all of that. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and yeah. Ian, you, you touched on it briefly earlier, but they glossed over the whole Sosa fallout so quickly there at the end. I mean, it, it was basically a footnote where they were like, uh, Sosa was caught with a cork bat and uh, hasn't, hasn't been back in Wrigley Field in 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> and it just it would have been nice to see them dive into that a little bit more. Again, we don't know how how much Sosa was willing to talk about that kind of stuff, but I mean, he was 
portrayed as just this beloved hero in Chicago. And then just to see things fall apart and them not really go into detail at all was, I was a little surprised by that. Yeah, he was never beloved on the South Side, but we can go to final <laughs> thoughts now. Um, <laughs> Mike Mandel, you want to lead us off on final thoughts? Yeah, why not? And, and, and um, I'm actually going to stay relatively on topic for this because I, I enjoy this debate. And, you know, I, I definitely agree with Adam's point that we, we have no clue who during that era was using steroids and who wasn't. We don't know that, that Griff, for sure that Griffey wasn't. You know, we all have our thoughts on that. Um, but. I'll tell you who wasn't using steroids was Hank. Hank wasn't using them. Babe wasn't using them. Roger Maris wasn't using them. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the, the, those records are the one that stand in my book. Okay. And, and Ian, uh, we'll go to you next. Yeah. I was going to kind of change up? the, change the subject and bring up this article that I know I shared with, with you all this afternoon, um, that I saw in sports illustrated of this, uh, this guy, he's now uh, probably in his 30s, named Gary Vitter, Gary Viter, who uh, basically conned his way into a lot of big games in the 90s, acting as a Sports Illustrated for Kids reporter <laughs> when <laughs> he actually wasn't. And him and his dad kind of uh, made up this you know, prolonged story and backstory, and they had a code name. And it's a pretty wild story where he got to interview Michael Jordan. Um, you know, when they played the Knicks in, in MSG, he, he was, uh, I think partying with the Rangers after they won the 94 championship. So, uh, there's a, it's a pretty cool story with some fun pictures that, um, you know, it's, uh, in a sense, it's, it's tough to read cause he was basically lying and, you know, cheating his way in, but it's also one of these wild stories that you could see like made into a movie or something in the future. So that was something that I came across today. It was a little different that stood out to me. All right, Adam. Uh, my final thought is more sad news from the baseball world. Unfortunately, my favorite sports bar in the world, uh, Foley's, announced a couple weeks ago that they would be shutting their doors. Uh, unfortunately, victims of coronavirus. Um, I've had some great memories there over the years, highlighted by when I was working at Stratomatic, we broke a Guinness World Record for the longest marathon playing a board game. Uh, we, we set the, the previous record was 54 consecutive hours and we beat it by over seven hours. The, the final time was 61 hours and two minutes. Uh, the event obviously took place at Foley's and uh, Sean Clancy, who's the owner, was just so good to us. And obviously this being a two and a half day marathon, you know, we were in his bar, you know, two consecutive nights. And I remember when the bar would close, whatever it was, 3, 4 a.m., uh, Sean basically gave me the keys. And for a couple hours, you know, I was, I was, you know, running the the show there. It was me and, and the, the two guys who were playing the game until, uh, until the bar opened back up in the morning. So we'll definitely miss Foley's. A lot of great memories there. And hopefully with time, they can find a new location and reopen in the city. Yeah, I, I hope so, too. If you're ever in New York City or live in New York City, uh, if Foley's opens up, go there because it's incredible or it was incredible. It's hard to believe they're closed. Had my birthday there last year. That was the last time I was there. They have wall to wall, ceiling to ceiling, signed baseballs and baseball memorabilia from any person, basically, you could think of. So love Foley's and Adam. I'm not sure. Thanks for giving them a shout out because it's a it's an awesome place. Um, my final thought 
uh, I want to take it back to 24 years ago on this date, around this time, actually, maybe a little later uh, now as opposed to then. But the Bulls won their fourth championship on this date in 1996. And um, our last dance podcast, the last one, uh, it went the way of the fire in the coffee can that we're never going to hear it. But uh, we discussed our memories from the 97-98 season. But the 96 championship to me is special because I was there. I was lucky. My dad got tickets and me, my mom, all my siblings went. Uh, and I'll never forget that. So uh, 24 years ago, June 16, 1996, a really happy day uh, for my sports life and the city of Chicago. So with that, I'm hoping everyone is staying healthy, staying safe. Uh, thanks for listening to another episode of the Sports Cafe, and we will be back next week talking Hall of Fame and um, anything else that, that comes up. So thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you again.